Welcome to the Athens Frontline, a podcast presented by the Red and Black that covers topics in health and wellness. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra, here to discuss, is food medicine? What exactly is healthy food? And hybrid vegetables and fruits with Dr. Robin Buell. Support for this podcast is provided by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership. For more information, visit grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Dr. Robin Buell joined the University of Georgia in 2021 as the Georgia Research Alliance Eminent Scholar Chair in Crop Genomics in the Department of Crop and Soil Sciences and the Center for Applied Genetic Technologies. Her research program focuses on the genome biology of plants, including comparative genomics, bioinformatics, and computational biology. She has worked on the genomes of rice, potato, maize, switchgrass, sweet potato, mints, and medicinal plants. Hello, Dr. Buell. How are you? Great. Doing good today. Good. I'm so glad that we have you today because we're going to be kind of exploring the different aspect of our podcast, which is wellness. And a lot of that is food, uh, diet, um, and then, of course, effectiveness of that. So a lot of people say, you know, food is medicine. And I wanted you to kind of put some light on that is how is food used as medicine? So first, you know, food, and mostly I'm going to talk about plants because that's what I work on, right? But you can get get some nutrition from animal uh, food as well. But um, humans need certain vitamins in the diet, right? Those are made by plants. We we eat them, we take them up, we absorb them. Those are the essential nutrients you need, vitamin C, vitamin K. um, Those are all all vitamins we're going to get from um, the plant. The other thing is, is we use plants for sources of calories, right? Just simple starch, right? We need energy. Also as sources of protein as well, say for beans, right? That's a high protein uh, food that we can eat um, where the plants are just using carbon dioxide, water and light, and they're making fixed carbon for us. So in that case, that's essentially nutrition right there. Your gamut from calories to proteins to vitamins and essential minerals that you would need so that's one, one aspect, um, and you know, you've always heard this eat an apple a day, keep the doctor away, and that's because you're getting nutrition from that. The other thing is, is that you can use plants, and this has been happening for thousands of years as medicines or as therapeutics, right, if, if uh, you want to use that term. So we know all about Chinese herbal medicine. Um, we all know aspirins, right, that actually initially came from a plant, that salicylic acid that comes from a plant. Um, so that's like something to, to think about in terms of your association of a medicine with a plant. You have other types of medicine, more like anti-cancer drugs that come from various plants for that. Um, and about a third of all plants are either still being harvested, a, a third of all pharmaceuticals are still obtained directly from the plant or were derived originally from a plant and now they can be chemically synthesized. So I think plants are very important in, in the spectrum of human health. For sure. Now, nowadays we have taken what the plants used to be, you know, on earth and fruits, and we've kind of put a human touch on them. I go to the grocery store and I see all sorts of things. Uh, When I was younger, we didn't have grapes that tasted like cotton candy or kiwis that tasted like pineapples or things called apriums or 
I couldn't even remember eating things that were called broccolini. So with our human touch on these vegetables and these fruits that our doctors keep telling us, eat your veggies, eat your fruits, are these still healthy when we are kind of creating this hybrid system that is for the consumer? So yes. Okay. Uh, I'll definitely say that. But before we talk about those and why they're out there in the marketplace for you to buy, let's ask ourselves, were those same plants, just say your good old fashioned uh, Thompson seedless grape, that little boring one that's there. Well, that didn't exist 10,000 years ago. So you have to remember that there was these wild grapes that grew and they were tiny. Okay. They were bitter most likely. And that through this process we call domestication, our ancestors somewhere on the planet started to select for specific wild grapes that produce bigger fruit or sweeter fruits, or um, maybe starting maybe several hundred years ago, they started to breed intentionally and make genetic crosses to start to make better fruit or grains or, or nuts. And so we've had the, this human touch on them for 10,000 years to bring you first what maybe 30 years ago was rather boring grapes or boring apples. And then now to appeal to a wider array of consumers and also, you know, have what we would call specialty markets. They can take, they can take varieties or this, you say this grape that tastes like cotton candy, that's something they would never have moved to the marketplace and they can move it to the marketplace as some unusual type of variety. So I think that's what uh, a breeder is thinking about. That's what a producer or grower or farmer is thinking about. How to A, get more of my product in the marketplace, how to give it a unique brand. Um, because of course it's, it's, it's about getting, getting revenue, right? So, and maybe to some extent you can get more people to eat grapes if they taste differently, right? right. That's always, the possibility. Now, some of these certainly could have different nutritional qualities, right? So if you increase, like say the pigmentation of the fruit, because that might bring more carotenoids um, or something like that. So when, when we are, you know, going to the grocery store and we see a bag of grapes that can taste like cotton candy versus grapes that uh, don't taste like cotton candy, that taste like normal grapes that we think are normal, would you prefer or recommend people to buy those over uh, the ones that taste like cotton candy just for their wellness or health aspect of it? Or would you say, you know, buy what you think is best and the nutritional will be the same aspect? So I, I think it might depend, but I would think most of them probably have the same nutrition. They would have a slightly different flavor or aroma component or maybe a visual component, right? But suppose you really want your kid to eat more more fruit and the only thing you know you can entice them to eat is like oh here's a grape that tastes like cotton candy and then they eat it well you would be a very excited parent right but i know personally i would guess i think they're cost quite a bit more than the regular grapes so i personally wouldn't buy them unless i truly loved them right so there's always these marketplace decisions by the consumer right like taste appearance cost there's always a price point of which you'll buy something and a price point at which you won't buy it. Right. That's true. Um, now, we also talk about often things like GMOs, and we've got these new uh, kind of markets that are saying no GMOs and completely organic, completely natural. Now, is that just a whole bunch of talk, or is it actually 
true that the more GMOs that you have, you know, the more you genetically modify these uh, either wild or, or already, I guess, modified plants or vegetables or fruits, if you keep modifying them, that they kind of lose their health benefit. So, so first, I don't, I don't think that's true. Nobody, no company is going to produce something that is going to be less healthy for you, right? I mean, I think, you know, that's, that would be a major break in, you know, the model of selling the food, the food that's healthy. So that's, that's, I think, something important. And you also have to think about it as, as I started off in, in the podcast, humans have been modifying plants for 10,000 years. We're just using a different technology to do this, okay? And it's a precision technology as well. So definitely in the last 20 years, the majority, 30 years, the majority of the genetically modified organisms have involved in certain genes for pesticide resistance and herbicide resistance, um, because that's a major management practice that has really sort of revolutionized agriculture and it's allowed for, you know, bigger scale agriculture. I suspect in the coming decade with this new technology known as this CRISPR technology where we can go in and change a single base, you're gonna now see whole different applications of biotechnology to produce um, different plants um, where you're only gonna change a few nucleotides here or there. You're not gonna be introducing a whole new trait. You're gonna be tweaking what's already present. And based on the regulations from the USDA, that's not necessarily considered genetically modified organisms in the old fashioned sense where you're deliberately moving an organism from one species into another. Here, you're going to be tweaking what's already present in that species. Hey, I'm glad that that clears up a lot of those conversations. And also we see so many of those advertising tactics um, that these companies literally run off of that. No GMOs, no high fructose corn syrup and stuff like that. Now, coming from someone who has worked their whole life with plants, um, what are some things that people should avoid eating versus uh, eating to remain healthy and well? Well, I think everybody knows that the closer you can get to the source of the plant, right? Like say, uh, fruits and vegetables or whole grains, that's healthier than these highly refined, like high sugar, um, high oil content processed food. I think that's a general understanding that we all have. And we just know that if you go all the way to the source, like that actual fruit or vegetable sitting on your plate, right? It, instead of eating, say, a potato chip made out of, uh, or not a potato chip, but a chip, you know, there's all these chips now made out of various vegetables that eating the actual vegetable is probably healthier, but eating that vegetable chip might be healthier for you versus eating a potato chip where you know, it's a calorie content, right? So I just think that processed foods, especially here in the, in the American diet, right? It's very processed food where sugar and oil has been layered on top, right? And it's tasty, it's quick, it's fast, right? And um, you know, that we all know that that's tasty, but it's higher calorie content and eating those raw or that the, we'll just say, you know, fresh, fresh, either fresh cooked um, vegetables and fruits where you're also getting the fiber content, you're getting the minerals and the vitamins um, directly from the source is always a healthier choice. Thank you. And looking at 
closer to the root and all of that. We also always have this conversation. I was just talking to my friends about this the other day was a lot of people who have um, been non-vegetarian and then switched to being vegetarian or vegan. They say that they can get their protein, a lot of protein through their plants, vegetables and plant and, and fruits. And the people who are non-vegetarian, my friends, they were saying, no, you got to eat meat. You got to have your chicken. You got to have your fish. It's not as effective when you eat it. Uh, get that protein from your plants. Now, can you debunk this or agree with this? Can you kind of clear this notion up is can you get enough protein from just going vegetarian or vegan? Can you live off of meats? So I actually, do, I don't know the percentage of people in the world that are vegetarian, but we know, we all know plenty of people that are vegetarian and, and things like beans, like pinto beans, kidney beans, uh, peas, lentils, those are chock full of protein. And then of course we know tofu, which is a soybean product. And then we also know cheese and dairy products are high protein. And so that's, that's a very good source of protein to have your balanced intake in your diet, right? So you're getting your calories, your proteins, and you're going to get your nutrition as well. So I think obviously we all know lots of vegetarians, we know lots of vegans, right? And I think they're health, they're pretty healthy, healthy in that diet. You just have to make sure you are getting those protein rich foods, right? From, from your plants. Now, I wanted to take a second as well and give you the platform to talk about your research. You know, what have you been working for? What have you been uh, kind of, what has been your mission and how is it going? Yeah, so so I've been working on plant with plants for quite some time. Um, in the last 10 to 20 years, I've been working on a lot of crop plants. And what I typically work it with is classical breeders, people that are breeding crops to make them either higher yielding, disease resistant, or more nutritious, and then providing them with some um, information about the genomes, that is the genes in the plant that condition these uh, traits so that they can make uh, varieties that are enhanced for whatever that we're looking at, especially disease resistance, because you know that's a key thing in, in crop yield and also in management. We don't wanna have to spray uh, crop with any more pesticides than necessary. So if we can bring in what we would call genetic sources of resistance, that's the preferred way to approach this. So that's what I've been doing for quite some time with different communities, with corn, potato, sweet potato. We've been doing that for, for quite some time. And this, this, this era of what we'll call genomics, which I think your, your listeners know about from like the Human Genome Project. And then you have this personal uh, genomic medicine, right? And, probably half of your listeners have probably gotten themselves genotyped with 23andMe, so they know all about certain probabilities of getting various human diseases. They know about their ancestry. Well, we do those same things in plants, right? So we can now take plants and look at their ancestry. We can make predictions about their ability to be resistant to a disease. Um, and we can use all of that information to do classical breeding to make plants better. Right, and I think I think that's a that's the thing that most people don't really know about. Um, they go to the grocery store and they buy things. Right, my guess is everybody in your podcast listening audience has probably never seen a potato plant actually growing because it doesn't grow here in Georgia. Um, but they have no idea what a plant looks like if they eat a potato chip every other day and they eat a French fry every other day. I mean, it's a big part of your diet, but most people have never seen a potato plant. Right, so. 
I think there's this lack of connectivity because unless you're in a in an agricultural production region, are you going to actually see a lot of these plants that are actually in the grocery store, right? So I'd say that's that's one big project set of projects I've worked on. The other thing I've done for the last 15 years is I've worked with biochemists who are interested in what we call natural products that plants make. So plants make lots of chemicals that we use all the time. So an example of that is taxol, which comes from the yew tree, and that's a breast cancer drug, but that's made naturally by the plant. And there's a whole set of uh, chemicals that plants make. And I've been working with biochemists to help them try to understand how does the plant actually make that? And then if we do understand how they make that and we are still obtaining that natural product from the plant, can we make it, first of all, in higher concentrations? Because typically these are very small quantities that the plant makes these. And second of all, can we actually now make the plant make slightly different varieties of these compounds? Because they may have better efficacy in whatever their purpose is. And so that's been really exciting because I've worked on a whole bunch of different plants that are used for a lot of different purposes. One of my most favorite ones is we worked on the catnip uh, plant and the compound that catnip produces that gets cats very excited. And we uh, discovered the biosynthetic pathway for catnip and how that's actually produced by the plant. Sounds very interesting. I know I have never seen a potato plant, which is kind of crazy to think about now that you're making me realize that. <laughs> And I know I've eaten a, a lot of chips. <laughs> so um, that is that is very interesting. Well, that was my last question. Thank you so much for taking out the time, Dr. Buell, to be here with me to talk about this and kind of spread the awareness of eating healthy and getting to know your plants and where things come from and being closer to them. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Of yeah. course. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Athens Frontline podcast presented by The Red and Black. I'm your host, Simran Kaur Malhotra. Make sure you tune back in next week for our next episode. Until then, check us out on social media at Red and Black. Have a healthy and safe rest of your week.